Support for Great Minds is provided by The Wine Store in Naples. The Wine Store offers a unique selection of wines from small production, artisan, and family-owned wineries. Their in-store wine education center hosts classes for the novice and connoisseur alike. Details are at thewinestorenaples.com. Welcome to Great Minds, a wine-centric podcast that goes beyond what's in the glass. After all, there's so much that goes into getting it there, the people, the places, the history, the stories. I'm Julie Glenn. And I'm Gina Birch, and today we're going to take a closer look at one of those places that Julie spoke of, and that place in particular is Spain. You know, when we first started doing this wine podcast, we were having fun, doing our own little thing here, our own little wine world, and, and then when the folks here at the station where we record at WGCU saw how much fun they were having. I think they wanted to jump in on on it. Who doesn't want to get in on it? Yeah, and they had this great idea to have a launch party. Mm -hmm. And so who are we to say no to a party? I'm not. Am I right? Never. So we had this great gathering at a local wine store. Um, A lot of our friends were there, but so were a lot of really fascinating people in the wine world, such as collectors, event planners. And then there was Tony Bryant. So we start talking to this handsome man with a Spanish accent. Yes, we're talking about Tony. And he casually mentions that he owns, well, used to own some vineyards in Spain and used to make some wine. and, And he takes people on wine journeys, not trips wine journeys all around the world. And, you know, from that moment on, we knew we had to get him here to talk more. So uh, welcome to Great Minds, Tony. Thanks for being here with us. Thank you so much, Gene and Julie. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, we've been trying to do this for a while. So we're happy you're with us. We're excited you're here. So you're from Spain? Originally? No, I was born in the U.S., but my mother's Spanish, and my wife is from the Canary Islands in Spain. And I was going, like, last name Bryant. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's actually Antonio is the first name. Okay. But but since very little, everyone calls me Tony. Antonio. Antonio. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so so Spain kind of leads the world in uh, Acres Under Vine, right? Don't they grow the most wine grapes in the world? I believe so, and a lot of people don't know that, but olive as well, olive oil. We produce 40% of the world's olive oil. Yeah. That's wow. pretty impressive. Well, it stands to reason that you would have a vineyard in Spain at some point in your life. So what happened? So you, yeah, you're born here you... in America. You end up going back to Spain. You have a vineyard. Yeah, there's there's a story behind that. <laughs> yeah, like like always. Sure. Uh, Let's hear it. It was my um, my ex-girlfriend's father who uh, was making wine, and, and he has a, a long tradition in his family in the Ribera del Duero, Dio, in producing mm-hmm. wine. And, you know, when I when I started dating my, my girlfriend, I met her family, and I she kept saying, oh, you've got to come up. You've got to help out. We're going to do the harvest this year. And I just fell in love with it and ended up buying part of the property. And, uh, and for uh, over 10 years with him, we were making wine and selling wine. That's what an amazing. experience. Yeah. What was, the, what was the brand? Why would you call it? Well, you know, it's what we call in Spain cosechero wine, which means wine without a label. Oh, so, so you it, could call it whatever you feel like that. The, we call the that day moonshine in yeah. America, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. We were doing it in his garage, really small operation, and we would sell all of it you know, every year. So you're selling wine without a label. Yes. It's <laughs> and people are trusting you. That is a I love it. It's so 1920s. Yeah. And, and let's hope the Spanish tax authorities are not listening. Yeah, no, that was <laughs> too I don't long know if they're ago. fans of the podcast. I don't know if they've yeah. liked us yet on Facebook. But I love that. <laughs> so what kind of wine were you making then? So basically red wine with Tempranillo, almost all Tempranillo. We had a little bit of Syrah uh, planted, but uh, red, classic red uh, Ribera del Duero. The Syrah just not smooth out every edge. Yes, it does. Yeah. It is such a good grape. How much did you make? 
So we were doing around 5,000 bottles. Okay, so that's not a little garage production. That's the thing about Spain. I, I know, right? Nothing is small there. Oh, we're just doing 5,000 bottles out of a garage with no label on it. Sure. Oh, my gosh, beam me up. I wish I could have been there to, to have seen it and tasted it. Do you have any still? I've got some bottles in Spain, not here okay. in the U.S. I, yeah. I still have a few bo- bottles, and it ages fairly well. I mean, we would we would do some of just uh, the regular alcoholic fermentation without getting too technical in a steel vat. But we would also do malolactic in a in an old barrel, used barrel, okay. as well. And then we'd put it in the cave. So that whole romantic uh, mm-hmm. idea of aging the wine in a barrel in a cave, we did that too. You did. So. Why why Tempranillo? Why there? Is that what the grape is there? Tell me a little bit more about how different grapes work in different places and different parts of Spain. Yeah, I guess when you think of Spain, you automatically think of Tempranillo. Tempranillo. And there's yeah. a good reason yeah. for that. I think it's just, you know, it's it's climatized. It's adapted so well. And um, and it is. It's our, it's our classic, our, our king grape. Um, and, and as a matter of fact, I said it's adapted so well. I think it is originally from Spain, if I'm, if I'm not incorrect, mm-hmm. the Tempranillo. And in the case of Ribera del Duero, it's really a young DO. I mean, it, as a as a wine producing region, it's less than thirty years old. Not like Rioja. Mm-hmm. You know, Rioja is well known. It's been around since the nineteenth century. Um, and, and El Duero, it's a very it's very cold there, and uh, the winters harshly cold. And then we have one or two months in the summer where it gets really hot. So it's really good, you know, for building up contrast in the grape. It, is it a fast ripening grape? It is. Ripens very fast. We never have problems in terms of maturity normally with that grape and produce a lot of sugar and therefore, of course, a little bit higher alcohol content. But they're, they're really sturdy wines. They age well. Yeah. Well, well, you know, the, you said something a little bit about whether Tempranillo was original to um, Spain. I'm looking it up, and I was kind of like, well, okay, who brought the vines to uh, Spain? I always like to know those kinds of nerdy things. I'm thinking it was the Phoenicians. I'm wrong. I had to consult my um, Jancis Robinson Your Oxford Companion Bible. to Wine, my <laughs> personal Bible. So I had to look that up, and uh, it seems like uh, grapes, they found uh, predated Homo sapiens on the Iberian Peninsula. Okay. Mm. So that wasn't necessarily brought there right. by anybody necessarily. The Carthaginians from, from Carthage, there they were doing some winemaking, but it wasn't until the Romans got there and kind of pacified the peninsula as, as they did. As oh. much as they could. Yeah, they, they got the wines growing there, and they ended up, Spain exported a lot of wine down to Rome, as told by the stories of the amphora that they have dug up. Well, but a lot of Spanish the... wine was huge in Rome. The Spanish wines have a reputation for being good quality and affordability. It's what is why is that? I, I was told uh, by different people because there are a lot of um, families that still own own the land, so you're not paying uh, a high rent or high mortgage. Yeah, there's you know a lot of the wineries um, they're buying the grapes from these families that mm-hmm. own the land. I think that there's there's kind of probably two reasons for why it's such good value in terms of price quality ratio. And sometimes, you know, it's a double-edged sword. It actually hurts us in Spain as well. Uh, From one, you've got a lot of volume, obviously. And Spaniards in general have always been poor marketers. I mean, you look at the olive oils. I made reference to it earlier. When everyone thinks of olive oil, they think of Italy. And they go Mm -hmm. to the grocery store and they buy a bottle of of olive oil, which is more than likely produced with Spanish olive oil, Mm. which was bought in bulk and then packed, and it says packed in Italy. Mm. And in terms of wine, we've never really been good about marketing our wine and exporting it outside of Spain and really giving it the, the value that it deserves. Um, but And, and there's some regions, uh, for example, La Mancha in Spain, that just produce bulk wines. And so they put it in, you know, you have to think about it culturally too. In Spain, wine, for example, is cheaper than a Coke, a bottle of Coke. 
much cheaper. You drink it every day. It's yeah. just part of your culture and part of what you do. It is, and and and, and that's that's a, it's a, another good, interesting discussion around whether or not we have a good wine culture or not, which is arguable. But we produce this huge volume, and in some cases, we don't place a enough value in and really. Um, making a, a superior or, or at least marketing a superior quality product. In other places now, we're actually doing that and it's being marketed as such. You know, yeah. I was talking with um, the man from Artadi in Rioja, and he that is one house that decided to drop out of the consortium. They said, I don't want to be part of Rioja anymore because I don't want to be branded with Rioja because the consortium was marketing that wine as an affordable wine. And when, you, when you're when you producing something that is costing you a lot of money to make and you put a lot of value in it, you don't want to put, uh, yeah, it's, it's part of this value wine region. So I see what you're saying about how that kind of marketing uh, has not elevated the status, I guess, or the price point. It, it, you're exactly right. And a lot of times, I think as consumers, We'll, we're quick to, to judge something, and we may say, on the contrary, we may say, well, this is expensive, but you have to understand and know what goes into that. I mean, mm -hmm. a, a barrel of oak, it's what, 700 euros, and then you've got a product which is parked for three years before you can actually sell it. So you, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, there's a, there's a huge investment, and sometimes the, the DO, uh, the region uh, organizations are marketing as something that's more of a value product, and in that case, it's, it's not a good fit for those who are really making a, pro a quality product. And I want to mention, along with that, you, then you have Kava, which is a whole other wonderful thing. Uh, but then there's another brand called Re named Reventos, and they're trying to pull out. They don't want to be labeled as Kava, even though they're in the region, because of the same thing. They, they say they uh, produce with a different type of quality and they go back to a lot of the indigenous uh, natural ways of doing it in the ways that they're that it's supposed to be in Spain and using the proper grapes so they don't want to be designated as cava which you know it's a whole nother marketing thing and it's hard you, to, for people to understand you're right and there could be some politics in play there yeah, too sure. Gina because in Spain what happened with uh, with the situation in Catalonia um, a lot of the rest of Spain kind of created a boycott or, mm -hmm. or people conscientiously chose not to buy products that were produced in Catalonia, oh. cava being one of those. And, of course, you can buy cava from Extremadura or other areas of Spain. So that may may have, played, depending on how much they export, it might have also mm -hmm. been played a role in it. Okay. The cava is interesting. I went to um, the big, huge cava producer, uh, Frisnet. Yes, massive. Can you pronounce that for me? Frisnet. Frisnet. Yeah. Good. Wow, See, do you close. say the T? Yeah, I was close. So there we were in Catalonia. It was awesome. But that place has miles, miles of bottles. I mean, you take a tram through this place. <laughs> I'm not kidding. It was a tram, and it was kind of dark, you know, and we relied on our flash to get shots. And it was kind of funny because um, they do Method Champenoise, mm -hmm. even yes. even for the, like, six-buck stuff, you know? That's my one of my favorite mimosa wines. Uh, yeah, I know. Oh, it's great. No. Yeah. Well, it's affordable, and, and, you're, and you're not mad at mixing something with it. And then know? there's Segura Viudas and this yeah. with the same people. But it was funny because when you go into their tasting room, they have their higher-end cavas, which were incredible, and you don't want to mix that mm -hmm. with anything. But, mm -hmm. um, yeah, their lower-end stuff is, you know, the right. lower-end stuff. But um, it was funny because um, every once in a while, because of the pressure in the bottles, the uh, base of the bottle, the punt, would mm -hmm. blow out. And uh, you'd see every once in a while a broken bottle, and you're like, I'm going by on this tram. I can get taken <laughs> out right. by uh, a cava punt. <laughs> Very, danger, danger. <laughs> but uh, there were no OSHA regulations apparently there. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, it's, again, that's that whole go big or go home mentality, too, that you have in Spain. How hard is it for a smaller winemaker to try to make it? I mean, Reventos and Blanc, they're, they're mm -hmm. not really small, but they're definitely not giant. They're not huge. They're mm -hmm. not huge. So 
What kind of challenges do smaller winemakers maybe face? Yeah, it's very, very hard, especially, you know, when when the bigger wineries or the more successful wineries who already have a, a well-established brand and label, even when they go to buy from a family, a private owner who wants to sell his grapes, they're putting a lot of pressure on you on price for the grapes. You don't know, as a matter of fact, until the last minute whether or not they're actually going to buy them because they're sending out their technicians, you know, to inspect the grape. Mm. And at the last minute, they say, oh, well, there's just not enough, you know, pigmentation on these grapes. Or, or I'm seeing a little bit of botritis over here. Uh, or, you know, it, they're very, very picky. And, and, of course, they're also they're forcing you to, for lower yields. So in Spain, we really have lower yields, especially in Ribera Duero compared to other wine regions in the world. So you're really getting, you, you know, you're forced to produce a smaller amount of grapes. And, and at the same time, that means you need to sell those for a higher price. Otherwise, you're in trouble. And trying to organize that sale with another winery when you've been counting on one year after year and at the last minute they decide they're not going to buy your grapes, it's a big, big challenge. There's no way to lock them into a contract or anything like that? It's always done year to year, and a lot of times they don't even pay you until after the fact. It's oh. it's very very challenging, and and that's I'm describing, of course, more of someone who's selling their grapes, right? For to and and as a small uh, winery owner with your own brand, your own label, unless you're really exporting, uh, uh, it's very very difficult to survive. You need to export. You need to get nice margins in your export markets. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're the it's very difficult to compete with uh, the pressures on margins and price with the other larger competitors. What regions do we need to start looking for? I mean, because everyone knows, like you mentioned, Rioja and, and, and some of the other ones. But what are some of the, the sleepers or the, or the ones with, that are really doing some cool things that we should keep our, our eyes out for? Yeah. So one, one of those that would be at the top of my list would be the Canarianas. But the problem uh, is they yeah. don't produce enough to export. So yeah. it's not something you can get, you know, get access to. But uh, certainly... The region around Murcia, which we, we you know we mentioned uh, before we were on air, that area is producing wine um, with Monastrel, uh, mm-hmm. as we call Monastrel grapes in Spain, which is equivalent to French Movedre, and making really, really nice wines. I mean, even here, for example, in Costco and in, right. in Naples, you can go and there's a wine called Juan Gil. Gil is spelled G. G I L. Yeah, very... I call it Juan Gill. Yeah, because uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm wrong. <laughs> like, like Johnny Gill. Yeah, he's a great producer. <laughs> yeah. They make they make some great wines in that region, and he's just one of several. And the labels are beautiful too. They're they're very nice. They're elegantly done. That's and he true. does have that reasonably priced one that has the face on it with all the little colors. Yes. Oh, yeah. that, okay. That's I know what guy. you're talking about now. Yes. But then he has other ones. It has one that has a tree. On, there, he has some really beautiful wines, mm-hmm. and that's Humia, right? Humia. Humia right. is is a great area, and then Yekla is another one, which is very close to Humia. I'm, I'm totally cheating and looking at my Spanish map here. And of course, <laughs> That's I had okay. step away from the microphone. So, and, I'm, and, and, you know, I know about Yakla, don't I, as I look at my book. <laughs> totally off mic. <laughs> Sorry. You're not giving yourself away at all, no. Julie. Well, I'm, I got to be transparent, yeah. you know. Thanks. <laughs> we talked a little bit earlier about, um, you said, you mentioned the culture of wine, whether it's debatable. And, and talk, when we're talking about the size of vineyards and the size of wineries that are going to have to export. Is there a culture in Spain? Is there a cultural shift happening that may be, I don't know, leaning more towards a uh, quality smaller, you said smaller yields. I know they've been reducing yields for the past couple decades, but is there a movement towards cultivating more of a small winery boutique kind of a feel? There is. Uh, more and more there's a focus on quality and that's something, and, and also on also on marketing. Not only you, you may have the quality, but if you don't know how to communicate and market that properly, then you've got this, this you know, it's a tremendous challenge. A lot of great wine that sits on the shelf. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, 
And then in terms of, I was referring to also culturally, culture-wise, is that the younger generation doesn't, is consuming less and less wine, and that's a problem. So they'll go out and, you know, spend 10 euros on uh, a drink with distilled alcohol, you know, gin or rum or something oh, like Spain. that. In Spain, yeah. And, and it's a shame because, you know, they're consuming less, less and less uh, wine, and, and you can get such great value. You know, with wine, they could go out and spend 10, literally 10 euros on a bottle of wine, having a dinner and serve four or five glasses. And, and it's, a, it's a different sort of um, environment as well in terms of when someone is consuming a beverage that has alcohol in it. Mm-hmm. And, in, and I think there, it's a complex, it's complex in terms of why that is. But I think some of the younger generation look at it and say, oh, no, wine was for my grandfather yeah, and yeah. mom and dad it's and, a peasant yeah. thing or an older thing when which is ironic because if you look at newer world countries for example the u.s or, or i could go south of the border to mexico and people actually on the contrary they view it as something that's cultured which it is wine is culture right yeah, yeah it's yes, funny because it you're talking about younger people not really being interested when in i'm like really what because in the united states younger people are really interested in wine and the hipsters brought chocolate to the fore oh the gosh wine, yep yep um that talk about an unlikely uh, star, but that really became huge for a few years. Yeah, Ch- Chocolat. Yeah, it's a, it's a fun, easy drinking, refreshing uh, wine from the Basque Country. Uh, yeah, white wine. So let's talk about the the food. You you know we were talking about going out to dinner, the cuisine of Spain, and and how the food matches. I mean, because look at he got a big smile, <laughs> which you can see it. He's like, oh yeah, now you're talking my language. Let's <laughs> let's pair these babies up. <laughs> yes, it, no Spain. And I guess I'm, I have to confess to all the listeners I'm biased because I, I am half Spanish. I have a Spanish passport. My mother's Spanish and my wife is Spanish. But I've traveled to 43 different countries, and I have to say Spain is my favorite cuisine. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have such a rich, uh, well-entrenched cuisine that dates back to, like you were mentioning, the, the, the Carthag- Carthaginians, uh, Phoenicians, uh, the Visigoths, uh, the Romans, uh, and even before that, uh, I, I'm trying to remember the uh, Tartesians. Yes, the Tartesian culture, which is actually from where sherry is produced. And so we have this rich history of uh, culinary history, which in the past 20 years has been refined. There was a Catalan chef named Ferran Adrià. Oh, gosh. El Bulli. So, right. you know yeah. I tried to get there before he closed. I just couldn't make it. The pictures of his food, I'm, I'm digressing. They did a, uh, a special exhibit at the Salvador Dali Museum in, in St. Petersburg. And the way they did that, and, and they it was just magnificent. It almost brought me to tears. The food was so beautiful. And I'm like, why was I not able to eat it? It was just amazing. As yeah. part of my my studies, I went to his restaurant. Oh, you I didn't get to eat, son though. of a... Okay. They didn't invite us to eat. Oh. But it was the most beautiful kitchen. And those pictures, it's, there's... The dishes before the meal service are put in this, like, well-lit photography region, and they, like, actually take pictures of all this stuff. And at the time that I went there, he was really famous for for culinary foam, right? That was the big Mm -hmm. thing. So we were sitting out there sweating on the um, patio outside, and he came out to talk to us. Of course, he doesn't speak any English. Um, And so he had a translator there talking to us, and they served us – Cans of like Fanta or something. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm opening up I'm like culinary foam. <laughs> I'm shaking it up, trying to. <laughs> but yeah, no, that was uh, an experience. But then he closed it shortly thereafter. Yeah, and yeah. so this gentleman, you know, he he really created the concept of uh, molecular gastronomy. He set the world on fire. He changed it, and yeah. every chef, even the the best chef you could see on any Netflix documentary, learned from Fernando Adria mm-hmm. and this whole generation of other great chefs in Spain and what they did is take this this wonderful base and this history of you know of of cuisine which is developed over so many centuries and then put a twist on it 
and you know add that modern side to it. So it's yeah, the, the cuisine is amazing. But and that's why I think you have such a you know a more passionate uh, people coming up about the wine too, because the two are just you know they go hand in hand. They they, they do. We have such a diverse uh, landscape in terms of wines in Spain, grape varieties and types of wine. Not to mention sherry, and I'll say mm-hmm. that again. It's a uh, with with capital letters and pairing these wines. There's you, you can it really it runs the whole gamut. So. Let's talk about sherry. Tell me about sherry. I've had um, a friend of mine was on a big sherry kick for a while. So he had us try sherry with oysters. That was like his big, big thing. But give us like an introductory crash course on sherry. Okay. Hold on. Sherry with oysters. Did you like or not? I did. It was a okay. dry sherry. Okay. All it right. wasn't like a sweet after dinner thing, but okay. it was a real... I don't, I don't remember the name because it's been a few years. Probably a fino. But, you know, that's the first place I would start is most people have a, a misconception, believe mm-hmm. that sherries are sweet wines. They're not. They're predominantly dry wines. We have one particular wine in the sherry uh, range, which is called a Pedro Jimenez, and it's a, it's a grape, which we let sit in the sun, and it turns halfway into a raisin, and then we make a wine which tastes like a raisin wine. That I've had. That's uh, a sweetie. That's, mm-hmm. the, that's the sweet one. And then you, centuries ago, we used to make wines for the English grandmothers, and what we do is mix that sweet wine with our dry wines, and even till today, you see these creams or um, uh, the, the, the basically creams or what they're normally Bristol called. Cream yeah, yeah. Bristol yeah. cream sherry. Bristol cream sherry. And that's for me, particularly, is not a wine that I enjoy. And that's, so, and, that's so diplomatic. It's not one for me <laughs> because I'm not a grandma in England. And, 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 and that's what and that's what was sold then, and, and those have lasted till today. But those are not the, the true sherries. The true sherries are the dry sherries. And so, to describe sherries, and this is very challenging because it's it's such a different way uh, of making wine. You know, most wines you start with a grape, and the grape is what influences what is, ends up resulting being the wine and all of the flavor and the nuances of the wine. That is not the case with sherry. Sherry is made with an innocuous grape called Palomino, and mm. Palomino doesn't really have any particular characteristics to it. And it's what man does with the grape is what makes sherry so special. It sounds like a Uni Blanc or something from France, that kind of a genre. It, well, we do. The, the sherry, ironically, has a lot of similarities in terms of, to champagne. Because, you know, champagnes and sherries are never a vintage. Rarely they are, you know, unless you get a molesame in champagne. But so what you uh, – sherry wine is, is made using – you either use, use a biological technique or then a, an oxidative technique. So it's, it's basically rust exposed to more air. And so you get all these crazy other flavors and, and, and characteristics which are totally outside the, the universe of your traditional flavors and characteristics of wine. It's a completely different uh, world. It, it sounds like a fun, fun uh, one to explore. And yeah. I guess you know we're not going to we're not getting as no. many of those over here. No, you, you, the ones you get are usually the bad ones. Yeah, and <laughs> and I always say for for someone who loves wine and I love all kinds of wine. Don't mm-hmm. get me wrong, you really need to understand sherry. And in my opinion, the the greatest value in terms of price, quality, and complexity, hands down, sherry. Great. Now I wish we knew where to go get some good ones. Uh, you know, I actually there I was mean, a, the, the range, the variety that he was talking there about. Was I would a, love to sit down and just try all of them instead of just the one or two that I've had. And there I, was a big box that there's a distributor here locally um, that has a few mm-hmm. that are worth checking out. And they, they were actually at a big box for a while in the back. Total Wine has a couple of them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was, God, what, what was the name of... Uh, can you give me some of the different kinds? There's different like yeah. levels of sweetness, yeah. right? Well, so you've got uh, fino, uh, manzanilla, you have oloroso, amontillado, paro cortado, and then you've got the sweet ones, which is a Pedro Jimenez or a cream or a, a pale cream. This was the one after fino. 
Okay, a manzanilla. That was it. Yeah. That's what I had with the, I, I remember that. That's a very, but that's dry. It's yeah, not, that's dry. what yeah, you had okay, with yeah. the oysters. That, that one with the oysters okay. really well. Yeah, no, the manzanilla is, is special because it's it's made the same way as a fino, same grape, but it comes from a town which is right on the coast. So you've got the, the floor. It uh, was a little bit briny. I remember yeah. that. Mm-hmm. I remember it being briny, and I remember it having kind of a, um, I don't want to say cigar, cigar box kind of quality, but like that cedary kind of like feeling that just mm. kind of makes you... Feel old school? I don't know why. Yeah, it, does it's, that make sense? It's, yes, it does. It's hard to, to describe. We call it sapidez in Spain. It's kind of this, not pungent, but it's a it's it's tough to describe. It's 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 like a pungent, a little bit flavor to it. But it's also has you notice the uh, the alcohol as well. These are these these wines are we call them generous wines in Spanish. Generous but because they, they <laughs> have like a higher that. alcohol content. Because they're so sweet. <laughs> it's just so nice to you. They're kind and they give it all. <laughs> so when we're talking about how um, it's hard to find a lot of these smaller producer type things, even smaller producer sherries and and wines from Spain and the United States. Um, that leads me to the next question about your travel journeys. And I'm yes. thinking, what I'm feeling, what I'm sensing from this conversation is that it feels like maybe you put together this travel journey thing so that you can expose people to some of the things that they can't find here about Spain to get them into a smaller place. Because it's not like, you know, Napa going up, you know, 20, 29. 29 and everything's on this boom, side boom, or that boom, side. Boom, 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 yeah. It, yeah, whiplash. You gotta ha- it's hard to find. You don't really know even where to start sometimes when you go to different countries, and especially one as large as Spain. You're so right. Uh, the The American, uh, the U.S. mentality, I should say, especially you know, like you go to Napa, like you said, it's it's more of a mercantile, almost like a shopping mall. It's like mm-hmm. a, and you know, there's nothing wrong with that. That's great. But in Spain, the actual the bodeguero or the owner of the wine the, of the winery, he's the last person that wants to sell you a bottle of wine. He's almost ashamed to sell it to you. He will say, "I don't sell wine. I don't. I, I don't know what the price is. Speak to the person at the end." If there's someone there, and it, that, that's the way they are, and so they don't think they don't have that that commercial store mentality. So to be able to access those wineries, you really need to have some assistance. And 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 yes, we do. The, my my company uh, that I have with my wife, uh, and also we have a business partner in South Africa. It's called Icon Journeys. We do do that. We expose to people to wineries that are off the beaten track because you know e- even in the islands, the Canary Islands, there's you've got to you have to know these small producers. You have to make a lot of phone calls and personally mm-hmm. ask them for favors because they're they're they really don't think the same way the mentality is I just make wine that's what I do it's what my father did it's what my my grandfather did I want to sell but I'm I don't I don't want to push this on anybody Interesting because what we go over there with a mentality of like we came all the way from the US what do you mean you don't want to serve us and don't you want my money Yeah, yeah <laughs> I've got it I'm waving it well, That's that's so funny I always say Spain is the only country I've ever been to where you want to give someone money and they treat you bad. <laughs> and I don't, I, I, I don't mean that they necessarily treat you bad, but yeah. it's not, you don't get the, it's not the same concept. Like here we say, oh, well, I'm paying you. I'm going to get this service and I demand this because I'm paying you. And it's a little bit of a different culture. It's, I, I'm going to give you service, but you know, you're, it's not about the money. Yeah. Yeah. We'd love to have you back again and delve in a little deeper into some more because I know we've just kind of done an overview. We could like have a whole like, sherry show and bring in some yeah. sherries and All try right. them. Hey, I'll we'll, lead you through that tasting. I would love to. That yeah. would be awesome. And, yeah, I didn't even talk about Bierzo. I love Bierzo. Oh, that'll the be region. another one. That'll that's another one. Yep, Mencia. Bierzo is, uh, yeah, with the Mencia grape, making really good red wines as well. You're right. It's, that's mm. a big, rich one. So good. I love those. 
Tony Bryant, thank you so much for being in. And Iconic Journeys is the website if people wanted to go and see some more about your travel as it's well. A, right? It's actually Icon Journeys. Icon. We're, ju- we just, we're just undoing a rebranding. It's okay. I-K-O-N Journeys, plural. I-K-O-N. Got it. All, All right. right. Sounds good. Well, Great Minds is produced at WGCU Studios on FGCU campus in Fort Myers, Florida. Our producers for online media are Anna Bejarano and Tara Calligan. Technical production is by Mike Canary. Great Minds music for Zante is by Colin Mannon. To get in touch, check greatminds.org. Thanks for listening. 